millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So Jim, we're doing this show because of a train ride. I, I went on an Amtrak train up the Hudson Valley to see my son, and I sat down next to today's guest. Dr. Richard Friedman. Never met him before, and we got to talking. And that's how we wound up doing this interview. Suicide and stress. What works? Dr. Richard Friedman. The federal government spends more money researching dietary supplements and headache remedies than it does suicide. So is it throwing more money at the problem? It's funding a problem on par with its public health significance, the way we did with cancer or HIV or cardiovascular disease. I mean, after the federal government started funding those illnesses, we saw a dramatic decrease in mortality. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Almost everything you read about suicide and stress is not only negative, it's catastrophically negative. The Centers for Disease Control says suicide rates in the U.S. rose well over 20% between 1999 and 2016. That story got a lot of play. Opioid death rates are up. Acute stress is a severe problem. Well, Richard, I mean, it is a little hard to find the bright side of suicide, but it's really worth asking what are the long-term trend lines and, you know, are these numbers dramatically different from what they were decades ago or in other countries? And what are the solutions, Jim? We've got to find them. Well, that's what we're here for. To help us sort that out, Professor Richard Friedman, director of the Psychopharmacology Clinic, Man, I managed to pronounce that. It's surprising for me. You've been practicing. <laughs> Here at the Weill Cornell Medical College in New York is our guest. Actually, we're Richard's guest because he invited us into his office. In addition to leading the psychopharmacology clinic, he's also a writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times. Thanks for joining us on How Do We Fix It? My pleasure. So are we in the middle of a suicide epidemic? Are things so much worse today than they ever have been before? In short, no, the sky is not falling. If you were just to look at what happened in the last couple of years, you might have the impression that suicide rates are really going up and there's an epidemic. But actually, the suicide rates have been flat for about 100 years. Though they've gone up and down, we are essentially now where we were 100 years ago. So suicide rates fluctuate over time. The real story is that they haven't fallen over time. Things have been worse than they are today. Actually, there are periods in our history where suicide rates are much higher than they are right now. 
the Centers for Disease Control, I mentioned it at the top of the show, has said that suicide rates in the United States between 1999-2016 did go up by quite a lot. By Some people have said it's around 25%. I've heard higher numbers. Oh, it's 28%. I actually calculated that data. So what's going on there? Is, is, is there a reason for that? Um, I think the rates are going up for various social reasons, that there are various stressors in the milieu. So, for example, during the Great Depression, suicide rates were much higher than this. You know, we're at about 13.7 per 100,000 in the last couple of years. They were 17 or 18 per 100,000. In most areas of medical science, we've gotten better at treating things. We're better at treating heart disease, even a lot of psychological issues like schizophrenia. But why is suicide resisting our best efforts? Well, we haven't placed much effort into treating and researching suicide. So it's not that it's resistant to our efforts. We haven't actually, as a culture, expended any effort. The federal government spends more money researching dietary supplements and headache remedies than it does suicide. And if you think that suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States, that's an enormous public health problem. About how many people is that in a year? Well, in 2016, roughly 45,000 Americans died by suicide. And that's more than the number of people who died in car accidents. Yes. It's also double the number of people who died by homicide. So that's a significant public health problem. So is there good research on, on why the numbers have gone up recently? I mean, have there, have, have there been clear links between, for instance, the economic disruption of the 2008 financial crisis or the rise in opioid abuse or the invention of social media? So you could look at every one of those factors and point your finger at anyone as a potential culprit. But the problem is that's just correlation. But correlation can't prove causality. So you're going to find a whole bunch of variables that you could point your finger at and say, oh, that's why the suicide rates have gone up. But some of those factors have been present for a long time. So you must pull your hair out at some of the stuff that comes out in the mass media that says, oh, well, increase in unemployment rate after 2008, therefore increase in suicides or acute stress. Yes, um, what's left of my hair. I try <laughs> not to pull it out. People love explanations. We all want to know why something is happening. The problem is that you're dealing with complex behaviors that have a lot of inputs. Mm -hmm. So like, for example, one of the reasons why it's so hard to predict suicide is we look at one variable at a time, like alcohol or mental illness, and they're all linked to an increase in suicide. But most people who have mental illness and most people who drink don't commit suicide. I mean, I can tell you what the characteristics are of someone who's likely to commit suicide. Someone with depression, someone who's white, someone who's old, someone who's divorced, someone who's living alone and having social and economic problems. But if I had 100 people who had that profile, almost none of them will commit suicide. So we're really bad at predicting who's at risk. Um, and part of the problem is we don't have all the variables we need to in order to figure out what's the best way to identify people who are at risk of suicide. Well, you're the director of the psychopharmacology clinic here at uh, Weill Cornell Medical College. What do you do in this field? So I used to study new drugs that were used to treat depression and anxiety. 
And these days, I spend most of my time training young doctors. And, and what is psychopharmacology? Psychopharmacology basically is the field in psychiatry that is focused on understanding how drugs work and change behavior and how we use them to treat various mental disorders. Talk a little bit about the whole field of psychopharmacology. How is it different today than, say, you know, when you were a kid? So the field has changed dramatically. Some of the earliest treatments back in the you know, 60s and 70s, we had you know, a few classes of antidepressants and mood stabilizers. Now we have dozens of these medicines. We have safer treatments now than we used to have more tolerable treatments. The downside, of course, is we have you know, many copies of the same kind of drug, and we need more novel treatments. You know, our knowledge about what's going on in the brain and what kinds of things are happening in mental disorders is more advanced than our therapeutics. We know more about the basic mechanisms involved in behavior and, in some cases, mental illness than we have treatments. We know that seatbelts save lives. Does psychopharmacology save lives? Uh, Yes. There's no question that a lot of these drugs actually don't just make people better, but they change the course of their life and they decrease the risk of suicide. So that then begs the the trite question from the smart-ass journalist, if your drugs are so good, why is the suicide rate not going down? Which brings us to the most important point, which is there are many factors that are responsible for this kind of behavior. The problem is that out in the community, most people with you know, psychiatric problems and suicidal symptoms don't seek help. And when they do, most of them are not treated by mental health professionals. Most are treated by non-psychiatric clinicians. There are only you know, a handful of psychiatrists in the United States, let's say, I don't know, 50,000. And most of them live in New York City. No, I'm joking. But many <laughs> of them live that way. Many of them most live of them in live cities. In my neighborhood of New York many, City. Right. Many of them live in cities and not in rural areas. So most people who have mental disorders are not going to be treated or evaluated by psychiatrists. So part of the problem then is that the people who need to see experts are not seeing them. That's one aspect of the problem. The other is even when non-psychiatrists would be perfectly capable of helping somebody with, let's say, a depression or an anxiety problem, like your primary care doctors or your nurse practitioners, a lot of people don't have access to medical care. The case of Kate Spade, who committed suicide tragically this year, from what I've read, her friends had no idea that, that she was in any way suicidal. Do people mask their symptoms even when they are being treated for something? Yes. Right before they make a suicide attempt or actually commit suicide, they don't disclose how they're feeling, which makes you wonder, you know, is there anything people could do? Everybody throws their hands up and says, well, if people are not going to disclose their distress, how can we help them? The fact is, There will always be people who hide it, but many, many people who have suicidal feelings and thoughts do give hints about their distress. So if you know someone, someone you love, perhaps you're worried that they might be heading that direction, what can you do? First thing is you tell them you're concerned about them and you share with them what it is you see. You say, look, I see you're not yourself or 
you look like you've been feeling down or anxious, and I'm worried about you. Have you thought about getting help? You know, I don't think that people should be reluctant or shy about asking somebody they know, family member or friend, whether they're in trouble. Say, you know, uh, you're just not acting yourself. What's going on? So I think it starts there. Any other thoughts around that? I think those are difficult conversations to have. They're difficult, but I think that people should start thinking about mental illness no differently than they do about any other medical disorder. The difference, of course, is that this involves the brain and the very nature of identity as opposed to, you know, a leg or a heart. But in the end, it's an organ. You wrote an article recently for The New York Times on stress, that stress can be good for us, but that acute stress is potentially a disaster. Can acute stress lead to suicide? So, well, actually, it's a little bit more complicated. Acute stress that could be managed and dealt with is actually healthy. And there's no getting around the fact that it makes people resilient. It's chronic, unrelenting stress that has the adverse biological and psychological consequences. So, for example, if you're challenged by something and you figure out what to do, that's good stress. And you feel good after that. You feel good. You feel like you have surmounted something. A bad stress is you're faced with a problem that's stressing you out. You can't figure out what to do, and the stress doesn't go away. You can't fall asleep. You worry. You're anxious. You get depressed. That is psychologically and biologically a bad experience. In a management seminar once, somebody told me that the best kind of situation for a person in a work environment is having big challenges but lots of control over meeting the challenges. The worst kind of situation is when you're held responsible for outcomes but you don't really have the tools to fix the problem. And that's the kind of chronic stress that you're talking about, right? Right. right. Having the ability to manage something and feel in control – is critical. I mean, that's what defines healthy and good versus adverse and bad stress. But do you think we don't, are people trying too hard to remove all sorts of stress from their lives? Um, I think that they are. I think there's a generational um, effect. I think, you know, for various reasons, well-meaning parents may try to shield their kids from adversity to help them. And, of course, you, you, know, you want to prevent people from being exposed to toxic forms of stress. But on the other hand, you, know, you want you know, people to have the experience of facing a challenge, struggling a little with it, and seeing actually that they can succeed in the face of adversity. So making life safer is not a way of dealing with chronic stress or preventing suicide. Making life gratuitously safe is a bad thing. You know, getting rid of terrible risks is a good thing. I mean, we need guardrails on roads. You know, we should have nets under bridges and things like that. But we don't need to say to people, you had one or two bad nights of sleep. Oh, my gosh. Terrible things are going to happen to you. Or, you know, you're worried about something. You should go talk to a doctor and get a medicine. All stress is not bad. There's lots of stress that's good and healthy. And you mentioned the, the issue of parents and kids. Uh, we've done a couple of shows with Lenora Skenazy, who, who runs a group called Let Grow, arguing specifically this, the kids need more independence, they need to be able to take some reasonable risks. And yet our society seems to be going in the other direction. I mean, people are terrified of seeing a kid walk down the street by herself. Yes, the question is why. 
you know, why is it? Well, some people say, well, you know, the world is more dangerous now. It's actually not. This may be sequestered in certain demographic groups that maybe it's the fact that it's competitive. You know, more kids apply to college or they apply to more colleges. So there's a sort of sense of a cutthroat competitive world and you want to give everybody the best advantage they can get. Or maybe, as some people say, it's that the sense of family um, and community has frayed. So there were many eyes looking out at your kids. So that, you know, when I was growing up, our parents never knew where we were, but they had the sense that our neighbors knew where we were. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Belonging. Is there a decline in belonging with fewer people joining the bowling league? I mean, this is the example cited by, uh, by Robert Putman in, in the well-known book Bowling Alone. Yes, I think that's correct. I think there's this kind of atomization in the culture in which, you know, the emphasis is on an individual and not on a unit. Could be the family, could be the neighborhood. You know, many years ago, I was, I, I love Naples, Italy, and I was walking around the city. It's an agricultural city, historically, and I was lost, and I could speak Italian, and someone said to me, um, not what are you looking for? They asked me, who are you looking for in a small neighborhood? And I thought, now that's remarkable. That means they know everybody in the neighborhood. And I told them who I was looking for, a friend of mine, Paolo. She said, oh, the doctor, he's up the street. Yeah. Now, if you did that in New York City or any other place in this country, no one would say, who are you looking for? They say, what are you looking for? To me, that spoke volumes about the nature of that culture. Can we get back to that? I mean, is there a prescription for a society to help start rebuilding some of these bonds of loose but important affiliations between people? I think it's possible. I think, you know, there has to be a value seen in taking care of one another. So when people say, you know, what could we do to make things better? You know, of course, you ask people who look like they need something, what is it they have trouble with? Or when you see somebody who's in distress, I mean, an obvious place to start is you just simply look around you and take a look at what's happening in your neighbor. And you have some curiosity about their life. I want to talk about solutions. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're talking with Dr. Richard Friedman, Director of Psychopharmacology Clinic uh, here at the Weill Cornell Medical College. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You say we should declare war on suicide. What's the best way to do that? The best way to do it is to go after the illnesses that actually bring suicide about. And that is two things. One is to fund suicide research so we learn better how to predict who's at risk. We already know most of the psychiatric problems that put people at risk of suicide. It's major mental disorders like depression, mood disorders like bipolar disorder, and substance abuse. And so we know how to treat them. So if we were able to treat more people with these disorders, we would lower the rates of suicide. And if we had better research about how to predict who among those people with those disorders was suicidal, you would have a tremendous advance in terms of preventing suicide. So is it throwing more money at the problem? It's funding a problem on par with its public health significance, the way we did with cancer or HIV or cardiovascular disease. I mean, after the federal government started funding those illnesses, we saw a dramatic decrease in mortality. You say it's really difficult to know who will commit suicide. Yeah. And that more research is needed to try and answer that question. Yeah. Is any progress being made in that field? Yes. Um, actually, if you start to look at um, multiple characteristics, multiple variables, instead of one or two, like 30 or 40, and use you know, machine learning, you can actually start to predict much more accurately a group of people who are likely to make suicide attempts or commit suicide. The Army has done this with a group of people who were admitted to the hospital, and Matthew Nock at Harvard has done this, and you can increase the accuracy quite a lot. Tell us a little bit more about some of this research the military is doing. We've all heard a lot about the problems of suicide among veterans. So what are they learning? Right. Well, what they did was they looked at everybody who was admitted to the psychiatric hospital during a period of time, and they went through the chart, and they collected 30 or 40 characteristics. You know, these could be clinical things like history of alcohol or drugs, history of depression. They could be demographic variables like where they were from, what their socio-demographic background was, family history, had anyone in the family ever made an attempt, did they make an attempt, all kinds of other variables, about 30 or 40. They threw them together into an algorithm that weighs different factors. And then knowing what the outcome was, because these people were hospitalized either before or after an event, they could then see how much could you predict um, whether somebody would make a suicide attempt going forward based on this profile. And the accuracy was about 30 or 40%. Which is better than an individual clinician just kind of putting together experience and hunches. The probability of being able to predict based on standard 
state-of-the-art is no better than the toss of a coin. Wow. So we really haven't made a lot of progress on that. No. I want to go back to this question about stress. There's been some research that shows that people can learn how to handle stress better, right? I mean, this is not just something you're, you're stuck with, and if you don't handle stress well, that's a curse you're going to live with your whole life. What are some of the tools that people can apply? So the best way to get good at anything is to practice it. You know, you have to be exposed to stress to master it. So one of the best things is to, you know, allow yourself to be challenged and not to worry so much about failure. Would that also work if you're, you have a, say you have a phobia about crossing bridges, so you avoid crossing bridges? You're saying you should go out and make yourself spend a little time on the bridge, and, and even if you might feel like you're going to get a panic attack or something. Yes. Exposure is critical. There's no shortcut. So if you expose yourself to the things that you fear or that you worry about, you come to see that your ideas about them and your fears about them are really nothing more than fears. They're not reality. And by doing it and succeeding at doing it, you actually lose your anxiety and your fear about them. What are the areas that you feel you've made real progress? So I would say we now have a much better understanding of factors that make people resilient. We can get people better in the way that we could before, but now we're better at keeping them well. So the true test of a treatment and whether you can help somebody, because the problems we deal with in psychiatry are chronic, is not whether you can make them better today. It's whether you can keep them better. And I think we've made a lot of progress. Dr. Richard Friedman, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. So there's not a lot to argue with there, Richard. No, no. We're speaking to an expert who, right, who right. knows a lot, and, know, I, and we know little. So I hate it when I can't just rely on my own opinion, and I have to actually need data and studies. And- one thing that did come out that was interesting in the way that it, Richard answered the question, which is he was cautious, careful. Right. Like this is why a lot of journalists don't like interviewing scientists, because exactly. they are so, so careful if they're good scientists about going beyond what the data really say. And and and, and that doesn't produce a, a so quick doesn't, sound doesn't, bite. Right. You don't get the gee whiz like, oh, here's the solution or here's the problem. But what I took away from this I thought was so important was how many complex inputs there are to the problem of suicide. It's not just one or two. You know, you can't just say, oh, it's the economy or it's drugs or it's it's it can be very very many things operating in concert and as he said you might have someone who has all of those risk factors but still the vast majority of them will not commit suicide and call me ignorant but the problem of suicide is is much greater than i realized i mean that that the, the two-thirds of all gun deaths are suicides not homicides right right you know it's really it's very striking so it's good to know that it's getting some attention i think that treating it like a, a critical public health problem the way we did with hiv and heart disease and, and other diseases it, that we've made so much progress on that's overdue yeah i think it's absolutely overdue and and we're overdue we're gonna get out of here it's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. Find out more about what we do with podcasting at daviescontent.com.
com. And thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.